Welcome to episode 5 of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. I am your host, Derek V. Trout, and today we'll be examining one of my favorite books by one of my favorite two science fiction authors. We're going to be going away from the screen and diving back into the printed word with a book titled Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. You might know this by the title Blade Runner, and you may be more familiar with the movie by that name instead of the book Do Androids Dream electric sheep. So we're going to be looking at the book today, not really being taken account in the, the movie, which is significantly different from the book as we will see today if you've seen the movie and are not familiar with the book. But before we get there, let me tell you a little bit more about myself. You may have heard of people being a coffee snob or a shoe snob or something like that, something with the word snob attached to it, but I must admit that I'm a pen snob. I am super specific about the pens that I have and the pens that I like, and usually at any time I have four different pens on me. Two of them are black ink and two of them that are red ink. And the overwhelming majority of time I use a fountain pen to write. Yes, a fountain pen, those old school ones, and it provides a, such a better writing experience than a ballpoint or a rollerball or a felt tip. The fountain pen is the way to go. I love it. Two of the pens that I have on me at any time are fountain pens, and they are great, but they do go through ink rather quickly, and sometimes you get your hands a little ink-stained when you're changing it, and I even like that. I, I like having that ink on my hands. It makes me feel like I've worked. It makes me feel like I've accomplished something. It makes me feel like I'm a writer. I know it's weird to many of you out there, I'm sure, but I love my pens, especially my fountain pens, and I am a pen snob. I admit it, and I feel better about it. That's good. I'm glad I could admit that, and it's true. Maybe, maybe I'll post some pictures of my pens on social media and show you what those are. And if you're, if anybody's interested, probably nobody is. But that's just a little bit more that you know about me. That I, I love pens. I'm not a pencil guy, and pretty specific about the pens that I use. And fountain pens are the way to go. All right. Well, let's continue on with the episode. Now I know the saying Philip K. Dick is my favorite science fiction author is a bit of a cliche. It's an easy choice. But it's so many people's choice because he's so good. And I've been reading Philip K. Dick for a long time. And his novels, his short stories, they're great. I'm a huge, huge fan of his work. And believe that all of his works that have gone to screen um, have just not done justice to his writing. And the quality of story that he writes has never been able to be truly captured on film. Um, but on a side note, my other favorite sci-fi author is Clifford D. Samack, and we'll be looking at one of his books the next episode, uh, a book titled A Choice of God. So just a side note there and something for you to stay tuned to. But today we examine the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? One of the best titles to any book ever. It's so good. I love the title and I've thought more about the title in preparing for this episode and I don't really think that the title means what I thought it meant at one point. The first time I heard it, and we'll get back to that and discuss what the title means, at least what I, I believe that it means at one point. But when I'm talking about this book, I'm going to reference it simply as androids when discussing it throughout the podcast, because I don't want to, I don't want to have to keep saying, do androids dream of electric sheep over and over and over again? So I'm just going to shorten the title of the book to Android, so it'll be a little easier to say. But before we get into the book, let's take a little bit of a look at who Philip K. Dick was. Philip K. Dick was born in 1928 and passed away in 1982. The K in his middle name is for Kindred. It's an interesting name. So Philip Kindred Dick. 
An interesting tidbit about Philip K. Dick is that it, he and fellow science fiction writer and master of the genre, Ursula K. Le Guin, went to the ha- same high school and graduated the same year. Although at the time, they did not know each other. I don't know why that's so fascinating to me for some reason. Perhaps it's the idea, there's an idea in there for a story in and of itself, but two of the great sci-fi authors, Philip K. Dick and Ursula K. Le Guin, went to the same school, graduated the same year, just didn't know each other. But I mention that because later this season and the podcast, we'll be looking at a book by Ursula K. Le Guin titled The Left Hand of Darkness. So that's just something else for you to look forward to in another book that we'll be doing. But for now, back to Philip K. One of the saddest things about Philip is how his works were not appreciated until after his death. I suppose it's often like that with the world's greatest artists. We don't fully appreciate them until they are gone. Even after winning the Hugo Award for The Man in the High Castle in 1963, the novel that he wrote, he still didn't find mainstream success. He was loved in the sci-fi world and by fellow sci-fi writers and fans of the genre, but he never truly kind of entered that pop culture, that, that mainstream success, and he never saw financial success. He actually wasn't even alive to see Blade Runner, the movie that this book is based off of, in theaters. It was the first of his works to be translated to film, and that's really when people started to notice and started to love and started to appreciate Philip K. Dick and his writing and his storytelling. Currently, not counting for inflation, his novels or short stories that have been translated to film have made about $500 million. $500 million for his short stories or novels that have been uh, gone to film, and he never saw a cent of that. He wasn't alive for any of it. He was never appreciated in the life the way that he is now after his death. One of the things that we have that is beneficial for looking at Philip K. and what he believed is a work titled The Exegesis of Philip K. Dick, which are portions of his personal diary entries as he looks at philosophy, religion, theology, stories, ideas, just life in general. It's really an interesting read. It's a book that I haven't, but it's often so heartbreaking to look into Philip's life because for much of his adult life, he struggles with drug use and mental health problems. He was never a man at peace. He often writes about religion in his journal and considered himself to have religious visions and insights and believed that at times he was led by a divine being to have supernatural information. At one point, he claimed that a divine being told him that his infant son was sick. So he took him to the hospital and they found that the boy had a hernia. And Philip K. Dick claimed that he saved his son's life because of this vision. I could get into more of this later, and I'm not sure how much it would be really uh, beneficial for our discussion of the book. But that, that event, that him having these supernatural visions, those events it, it led up to it greatly influence his later works. So by the time he has some of these visions and some of those experiences, you can really see a difference in his writing before that and after that. But Androids is written before that happened, so it didn't have any influence on this work. So maybe we'll take a look at that more in depth sometime later on when we examine some more of Philip K.'s work. It's interesting how often Philip K. Dick uses the idea of simulacra, though. Yes, we come back to simulacra. As discussed in depth in the first episode and mentioned again in episode three, In fact, in 1964, Philip K. Dick published a book titled The Simulacra, a book that I had to buy as soon as I found out about it. It's a good read. It was good. I enjoyed it. His use of androids in many of his works are simulacra. 
And without a doubt, the androids in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep are simulacra. They're not human, but they are a simulation of humans appearing to be real, appearing to be humans, but are not. And Jean Baudrillard, yes, we go back to Jean Baudrillard, who wrote Simulation and Simulacra, and we've already talked about him in episode one. We talked about the, that book. It's the book that Neo pulls off the shelf in The Matrix. And But uh, if, Jean Baudrillard wrote a essay titled Simulacra and Science Fiction, and in it he talks about Philip K. Dick, and this is part of what Baudrillard wrote. Dick does not create an alternate cosmos, nor a folklore, nor a cosmic exorcism, nor intergalactic heroic deeds. The reader is, from the outset, in a total simulation without origin, past, or future, in a kind of flux of all coordinates, mental, spatio-temporal, semiotic. It is not a question of parallel universes or double universes or even of possible universes. Not possible or impossible, nor real nor unreal. It is hyperreal. It is a universe of simulation, which is something altogether different. And this is so not because Dick sp speaks specifically of simulacra. Sci-fi has always done so, but it's always played upon the double, an artificial replication or imaginary duplication, whereas the double has disappeared. There is no more double. One is always one is always already in the other in, an, in the other world, another world in which is not another, without mirrors or projection or utopias as means for reflection. The simulation is impassable, unserpable, checkmated, with extority. We can no longer move through the mirror to the other side as we could during the golden age of transcendence. Are you confused? Good, neither am I. We can just move on then. But seriously, this just speaks about Philip K. Dick and his use of simulation in his writing and how it's a common theme. His writing is full of simulacra and full of simulation. You can even go on YouTube and find a video of Philip K. Dick talking about how we may be living in a simulation that is very Matrix-like decades before the Matrix is made. It's a really interesting video to listen to. Anyway, in his journal, Philip K. Dick writes extensively about spiritual and religious issues, including God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, when I was reading through some of his journals and experiences, it just made me very sad. It's clear that he struggled with finding peace and comfort and contentment and joy in this world. He had a lot of struggles. He struggled to know what these visions meant and who he was. I'm not sure if Philip ever knew who he really was. What, what about you? Who are you? Are you one who's been saved by grace through faith from the gift of God? And are you living into that identity today? Or do you not have an identity? Do you not know who you are? Are you looking for meaning? Are you searching for joy? Are you longing for peace and contentment? If you are, come to Jesus. He can make you whole and fulfill the longing of your soul. So who are you? Philip K. Dick never knew who he really was. He was searching. He was longing for something more. He was lost. Reading through his personal journals and accounts makes that clear. And I'm not sure that he ever really got the answers that he was looking for in life. But I'm also not sure he was ever truly seeking them. But are you? Also, when Dick had what he called religious visions, he wasn't sure where they came from. One particular one particular experience, he had this what he claimed was a beam of pink light that unlocked his consciousness. 
But as Kyle Arnold, the author of The Divine Madness of Philip K. Dick, he writes this in an article found on PublishersWeekly.com. Dick perp- uh, proposed that as the, this beam of pink light could have been f- either from one of these sources. It could have been from God, the KGB, could have been from a satellite, could have been from aliens, or it could have been from a first century Christian named Thomas with whom he was in telepathic communication. At least that's what Philip K. Dick believed. Or he thought it could have been from the CIA. Or maybe this pink beam came from a version of himself from a different dimension. Or possibly it even could have came from his deceased twin sister contacting him from the spiritual spirit world. Each new theory seemed to telescope outward into further possible theories ad infinity. So Philip K. Dick never knew where these visions came from. He was always longing. He was always searching. He was always looking. At one point, he even theorizes that an extraterrestrial being symbiotically attached in itself to his brain and telepathically linked him with different individuals from various time periods, accounting for his visions into the past, or maybe he says the past, maybe as he says, Philip K. Dick said, maybe it was just the past coming into the future when he is, instead of him going back to the past, it was the past coming forward to him. And then he thought that the spirit of Elijah had come upon him, But according to Kyle Arnold, Dick knew that what he called his divine madness would come across as mental illness. And it probably was. He, He had some mental struggles and issues and truly needed help, but never sought that help. So if you need help, please, please seek help. However, for all these religious, religious visions and writings on religious experience and where it might have come from. Even still, I'm not sure that we can see anywhere in any of Philip K.'s writing that he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In the introduction for I hope I shall soon, I hope I shall arrive soon, Dick writes this, I am an Episcopalian. And he tells of a conversion that he had with a priest. But Dick also wrote about other religions, and we can see influences from other religions in his writings. So all this to say, I don't know. And I'm not sure any of us exactly know how to define the religious beliefs of Philip K. Dick. However, in an interview that Philip had with Slash Magazine in 1980, I found it on the website DangerousMinds.net. And be warned, if you go to read this article, the language and subject material would not be rated G or PG or even PG-13. This would be rated very R. There's no question about it. There's a lot of different in course language and topics that are discussed. So if you're going to read that article, be, be, be warned. It is not something that is, is, um, is not something that's rated PG-13. It would be rated more than that. But in the article, he's asked, were you raised in a religious organization? And Philip says no. And then he says, are you anti-organized religion? And Philip K. Dick says, yes, technically I'm Episcopalian, but I don't ever go. I'm interested in them because they're a barrio church. Now, the Spanish word for barrio, the Spanish word barrio means neighborhood. So they're a neighborhood church. And they do a lot of civil service work. Technically, I'm a religious anarchist. So there we have it, folks. Philip K. Dick, in his own words, he's a religious anarchist. I could go on about this all day, and maybe we could try to dissect some more of that and try to find out what that truly means and what all goes into that, but I'm still just trying to introduce him here in his book for this and just trying to get a little bit more of an idea of who he was. So I think all of that to say is Philip K. Dick was a very complicated person. 
He was a, a person who was searching, who was longing, who was looking for answers, but I'm not sure he ever got those answers he was looking for because I don't think he was ever looking in the right place. Where are you looking? All right, now before I get sucked down another rabbit hole of trying to discover exactly who Dick was and what he believed and what he experienced, I just better move on. So for now, I'm done. However, before we get started examining this book, I have to give you the obligatory spoiler alert warning. There is going to be a number of spoilers to follow for this book, so you have been warned. If you've never read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, turn this off. Go to your local used bookstore if you has, have one and peruse the shelves of the sci-fi section. You just might find this book. And while you're by there, well, while, you, while you're there, buy anything and everything written by Philip K. Dick. It'll be worth your time and money, I hope. I've not read all of his books and cannot say conclusively that I support that statement, but his and, and his books are also not for everyone, especially the later book after his religion, his later books after his religious vision started. Sometimes his work gets very strange and very hard to follow and very confusing, but it's very in-depth and it brings a lot of a, a lot of different issues to, to light as well. So I encourage you to, to, to get some of his books and to give them a try. Of course, um, you can also just go listen to the audio version of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. That's a, another option, and I believe you can find that even on YouTube. So if you want to go and look at that, you can do that. But there are some adult themes in this book. Topics of lust and sex and adultery and murder. All those kinds of things. So you have been warned. This is a, a book that deals with some mature topics, and we're going to deal with some of those here today because we don't shy away from dealing with real-life topics here in Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. So let's begin with a very brief overview of androids. The story starts on January 3rd, 2021, almost one year ago in real time. See, if I was better at doing this, I would have released this episode on January 3rd, 2021, and we, we could have started it there. That would have been kind of neat if I had thought of that. Um, but anyway, I think that would have been cool, but I already missed that chance. So anyway, this story starts to take place on January 3rd, 2021. And it actually takes place within a 24-hour period. The whole book is just one day that we have here. Anyway, in this book, Rick Deckard is a bounty hunter hired to track down androids and retire them. That is, to kill them. Deckard's dream is to own a real animal, as this book takes place after a worldwide nuclear war that's left, uh, the nuclear war that has left most of the animals on Earth dead. There's very few real live natural animals anymore. So owning a real animal is a sign of high status. It's a sign that you're important. It's a sign that you can afford it. So most people don't have real animals, but they all want one. More than that, though, most people have also left Earth after the war and settled colonies on, uh, on other planets. And Deckard is, has remained on Earth, and he gets a high-profile job to retire androids who have killed their human owners. Now, some information about the androids that will help you understand this book. In Chapter 2, we're given some background of the androids and why they're made. We are told about a nuclear war referred to as World War Terminus, and we read this. A meager colonization program had been underway before the war, but now that the sun had ceased to shine on Earth, the colonization had entered an entirely new phase. In connection with this, a weapon of war, the synthetic freedom fighter had been modified. Able to function on an alien world, the humanoid robot, strictly speaking, the organic android. 
had become the mobile donkey engine of the colonization program. Under UN law, each immigrant automatically received possession of an Android subtype of his choice, and by 2019, the various the variations of subtypes passed all understanding in the manner in the manner of American automobiles of the 1960s. That had been the ultimate incentive of of immigration: the Android servant, the carrot, the radioactive fallout at stake. And this is still the practice. So, if one were to immigrate from Earth they would receive an android for a servant when they would go to a different colon, colony to, to live there if they leave the earth. So, so that's where these androids are. They are essentially made to be servants or slaves of people who are going to different colonies leaving earth after the war. And that's still the practice that's going on here today in, in this book. So we'll dive into the story throughout the podcast and get more into the plot of the book and the theology that we see throughout. Those are just some background things that will help you to understand this book if you haven't read it and are still listening to this. But one of the first things that struck me about androids is what is called the mood organ, something that's not seen in the screen adaption of this novel. The opening line of the book says this, A merry little surgeon of of electricity piped by automatic alarm from the mood organ beside his bed awakened Rick Deckard. But what is a mood organ? The mood organ is a device that one can order drugs from in order to alter their mood. Here's a brief back and forth between Deckard and his wife, Iran, who is not in the movie version, regarding what she has ordered from the mood organ. My schedule for today lists a six-hour self-accusatory depression, Iran said. What? Why did you schedule that? It defeated the whole purpose of the mood organ. I didn't even know you could set it for that, Deckard said gloomily. The mood organ is a way for people to self-medicate themselves without looking at the black market. Iran has set the mood organ so she'll feel despair a couple times a month, which she, she thinks is a, an appropriate amount of despair to feel, that's an appropriate amount of time to feel hopeless about everything. So a couple days a month, I'm just going to set a six and a half hour self-accusatory depression mood for me. And that's what she does. She is hopeless, though, because she feels she'll never be able to leave Earth. Like so many people have after the war. And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. But the mood organ is set to numbers and it gives a certain effect. For example, number 481 gives you awareness of the manifold possibilities open to you in the future. Or 888 gives you the desire to watch TV, no matter what's on. Or 549 provides pleased acknowledgement of husband's superior knowledge in all matters. Or this one is particularly funny to me. Number three, which stimulates the cerebral cortex into wanting to dial the mood organ. So, if you don't feel like using the mood organ... Just dial number three, take the pill, and then you'll feel like dialing the mood organ. So even if you don't feel like using it, they've got a, a solution to that problem as well through, through drugs. In the opening of the book, Iran and Deckard argue about his bounty hunting, and he sits at the console of the mood organ and debates between dialing for a thalamic suppressant, which would abolish his mood, which would abolish his rage, or a thalamic stimulant, which would make him irked enough to win the argument. But Iran threatens if he dials for what she calls greater venom, then she will dial the maximum stimulant, and she says that every argument they've had up to this point will seem like nothing. So he doesn't dial for it. These medications are known as Penfield 
artificial brain stimulants. Penfield, the name of the company that produces it. So they're Penfield artificial brain stimulation. And we see that Iran and Rick are depressed and use the mood organ to overcome their depression. Iran and Rick often use 481 to give them hope for the future. Now we're diving deep here to begin with as depression is not an easy subject to discuss. We live in a world where we must put our best life on social media and pretend like everything is fine and okay and great and dandy, even when it isn't. We apply filters to our pictures and smile for the camera, even though there's pain inside and we feel alone and hurt and down. We put on a mask like we discussed in episode three with the Martian Chronicles, either to conform or to conceal. But depression is real. And it can feel inescapable and and like you're the only one that's going through it. And over these past two pandemic years, depression's become even more heightened for people with isolation and loss and death and, and sickness and all the struggles that these pandemic years have brought. But know this, you're not alone. And there is help available. In androids, the mood organ is used to medicate oneself out of depression. Now, I cannot speak much to medicine and depression as I am nowhere near qualified to discuss depression medication. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is seek the help of a a trusted medical professional. If medicine is needed to help you with depression, then use your medicine as prescribed. Use it as prescribed and directed by your doctor or psychologist or therapist, whoever it may be, follow their directions if they are trusted and you know them and and you, you put... Put your trust in them, not in me and what I'm telling you. But if you need those medications, then take them and take them the way that you're supposed to. I've heard some people say to those suffering from depression that they should just get it together or just pull yourself out of it. But such things are sometimes just not so easy. And saying those kinds of things, just get over it. Just pull yourself out of it. Get up by the bootstraps and and be tough. Just man up, something like that. That does more damage than it does healing. Some people need medicine for depression, and that's okay. If you need medicine, that's okay. I would also encourage you to talk to a professional counselor or psychologist because for some, medication is not what's needed to overcome depression because there are deep-seated issues that need to be dealt with and discussed and overcome. So, So sometimes medicine is needed, but sometimes that's not the answer. But whatever the diagnosis from a professional, follow their diagnosis. Listen to it. Follow their instructions. They know better than I do when it comes to depression and medication and how best to overcome that. So seek help if you need it. Please, if help is needed, seek help. A hard-to-answer question also comes up, though, when discussing depression within a Christian context. Can Christians be depressed? Now, some might say, and some have said, that Christians cannot be depressed because of something, because of something like the these these following verses here. Something like Galatians five twenty two through twenty three, which says this: "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control." There is no law against things like this. Joy is a part of the fruit of the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. Being in, in one's life, if we have the Holy Spirit, then we have joy. And some have said that this means that Christians shouldn't be or Christians can't be depressed because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we have peace and we have joy and we have all these things. So, so Christians can't be depressed. 
Or sometimes somebody may say something about maybe um, James 1, 2 through 5. My brothers and sisters, think of the various tests you encounter as occasions for joy. After all, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let this endurance complete its work so that you may be fully mature, complete, and lacking nothing. Even in the difficult situations of life, we should have joys, this passage in James says. That here it is. Even take these various tests as you encounter these difficulties as occasions for joy. So, so some people look at this and say, well, you know, Christians really can't be depressed. The Bible tells us that, that that, that can never happen. Or, well, um, you know, if you're really depressed, are you really following Jesus the way that you should? Or, or all those different kinds of things. And, and, and it gets into some really sketchy territory and, and different theology. So, so here's what I would say to this. First of all, the question I would ask is, is depression or lack thereof ever discussed as being part of the criteria to enter into, per, into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It isn't. It isn't. Depression, lack of depression is never discussed as being part of the criteria to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus never says that those who are depressed can't be his followers. And he also never says, if you come to me, I'll instantly take away all your depression. You'll never feel sad or depressed again. Jesus never tells us that. He never says, if you're depressed, sorry, can't follow me. If you're depressed, that means you really don't know. No, Jesus never says any of those things. And in honesty, we live in a depressing world. We live in a world where sin exists and it's depressing. And, and sometimes we all become depressed. And reason and experience shows that one can be a Christian yet still struggle with depression. Can God help you overcome that? Sure. Will it happen the moment you give your life to Jesus? Probably not. When we pray the prayer asking for forgiveness and asking Jesus to be Lord and Savior, we are changed, yes, but we are also changing. We are changed from life to death, from lost to found, from orphaned to belonging to God's family. We are changed, yes, but we are also changing changed and changing. We are changing as we grow in grace and knowledge, as we seek to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of others. We are changing, and maybe part of that changing process for you is dealing with that depression. So it's okay to seek help for depression. Professional help, that's okay, and seek that and get it if you need it. And I don't and don't think that you're the only one that's going through depression, even if you are a Christian. You're you're not. Just because you're depressed doesn't mean that you are alone. Doesn't mean that you are the only one struggling with this. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you or that God has left you. Just because you're depressed doesn't mean that God is not working in your life. And it doesn't mean that God is angry or upset with you. That's what the devil wants you to think. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Jesus can and does and will work through your life if you allow him to do that with depression. And if you go and seek professional help, because we live in a fallen world where sometimes medicines are needed to correct imbalances, and we live in a fallen world where people get hurt and where people, there's abuse and there's deep-seated pain, and sometimes we need to talk to somebody to be able to overcome those things. So so God has, has put some things in our lives that we can be able to overcome this. And following Jesus can and will give you joy. It can and will do that. But God also has enabled us to use other people 
and their ideas and inventions and science to be able to overcome these things as well. In John 15, 9 through 11, we read this. As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. This is Jesus speaking. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be complete. Following Jesus' commands, living how he has instructed will bring you joy if we are truly, sincerely, genuinely following. And when we are truly, sincerely, genuinely following, we're getting help when we need it to be able to overcome some of the things in our past or maybe to be able to overcome some imbalances that we have. We can do that, and that can happen. But joy and happiness are different as well, so let's keep that in mind. And Jesus' joy can be complete in you, but that may take time, and it may be more of a struggle for you than it is for some other people, and it may become more difficult for you than it does for others because we're all different. There are some solutions to dealing with depression, and in androids, as we have seen, the preferred method, really the only method that we know of, is the mood organ. On the surface, this may seem um, like it's not like it's not dealing with the root of the problem. The medication for depression may solve nothing, but that simply isn't true. There are real chemical imbalances and other factors that could be causing depression that can be dealt with through medication. So taking that medication again is okay and take it as prescribed. Where the mood organ comes problem becomes problematic for me, however, is that it is that, that it has a setting to quote unquote deal with all situations of life. And that's really not dealing with them at all. I wonder if people like Iran in the story who rely so much on the mood organ or are just as robotic, if not more robotic than the androids. Which leads into the main theological question that is examined in this book. What does it mean to be truly human? However, we need to discuss a little more about the story before we get there, and we will get there. We find out in the first chapter chapter that Deckard has a robotic sheep. His neighbors think it's real, and most of his neighbors where he lives actually have a real animal. But Deckard does not. He used to have a real sheep. It was a wedding present from Irene's father, but his sheep died of tinnitus, so he had a mechanical replicant made of it. Now, having a real animal is a big deal in androids, a huge deal, like I said, because after the war, almost all the wildlife on Earth has died, and the planet in many places has become unsuitable for life, not just life of people to make them leave, but also animal life. So... To have a real, live, actual living animal is a pretty big deal. It makes you a pretty big deal. And in the conversation, we find that that Bill um, has a, a in the conversation with one of his neighbors, Rick finds out that his neighbor Bill has a horse that is pregnant, and he's now going his name. So Bill is now going to have two horses, and this kind of puts the question of if his horse is real or not. <laughs> and it's often assumed that animals are not real, but it's not sociably acceptable to question someone if their animal is real or not in here. But when his horse becomes pregnant, it kind of puts that question to rest. They kind of know that, oh, this is a real horse. And in chapter one, we read that Deckard had, of course, never nosed into the matter any more than they, his neighbor, had pried into the real workings of his sheep. 
Nothing could be more impolite to say, is your sheep genuine? Would be worse would be worse breach of manners than to inquire whether a citizen's teeth, hair, or internal organs were authentic. So asking is your sheep genuine is a pretty big insult to, to most of the people here in the society. So you don't need so you don't ask other people if their animal is real or not. But what's most significant from this conversation is when Decker tries to buy Bill's horse. Bill says it would be immoral for him to sell his horse. But Decker says it's more immoral to have two horses to sell to have two horses than to sell one. So he offers to buy the colt that Bill's horse is going to give birth to. So um, Bill says, well, I can't sell you my horse because then you'll have two real animals and I only have one and that's not really moral. But Decker's saying it's better for me to have a horse and for you to have a horse. So there's some interesting animal morality things that are going on here. But Anyway, Bill doesn't want to sell his horse, even though Deckard has a, a catalog that he carries around with him that lists the price for live animals. He has that here, and he he um, offers to, to give him the list price of the catalog for the horse. So there's a really strange code of morality here in Androids. Deckard even says at one point, for you to have two horses and me none, that violates the whole basic theological and moral structure of mercerism. Ben, now, Bill doesn't know at this point that Deckard's sheep is not real, so he responds, you have your sheep, sure. If I had two animals and you didn't have any, I'd be helping deprive you of true fusion with Mercer. Then Deckard shows him that his sheep isn't real, but Bill still doesn't want to sell his horse. Now, this idea of Mercerism and Mercer is seen throughout the book, and I think it's best defined as a religion, but what exactly is it and what exactly does it mean? If you've read this book, you know that Mercerism and Mercer, the guy who started it, they are are a big deal. But what exactly is that? We're going to skip around here a little bit in, in different parts of the book to try to get an understanding of this. Now, we find that the androids that Deckard is trying to retire, that is kill. Remember, when we say he's trying to retire an android, he's trying to eliminate, he's, he's trying to kill it, if you can kill an android. Anyway, he's 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 trying to retire it. He's going to put it out of commission. But anyway, um, I, I oh maybe I should apologize as well. I probably should have said what an android is by now. I assume that everyone knows, but maybe that's not the case. I don't know. Androids are robots with human appearance. So sometimes that appearance can be very human-like. Think of something like Data on Star Trek. Very human-like android in in appearance. You wouldn't know it until you pop that panel open on his head and he. He has all those circuits and such in there. Or it could be something with a humanish face and two arms and two legs, something like C-3PO in Star Wars. C-3PO would be an android, a robot with human appearance. So the, the Data, C-3PO, they would both be androids, but very different degree of android. And in this book, the androids are very, very, very human-like. They are so human-like that they are organic androids, mixing the machine with the organic, to make something that some claim is more human than human. Okay, so the androids Deckard is looking to retire in this book were servants for people who emigrated to other planets after the nuclear war. The androids who were seeking to be free, which is a point we'll get into later, they killed their human masters that they had been forced to go with to different places that, that had been colonized 
they killed their human masters and returned to Earth, thinking that it would be easier to come to Earth and to hide here than to hide the, on, the, on the planet that they were on, where people had known them, where they'd seen them, where they were. So, so the androids that Deckard is hunting down have killed their masters and returned to Earth. Now, with that in mind, in chapter three, we read this about mercerism. And in this book, androids are often called Andes, just letting you know, so, so that'll make sense. So here's what we, we read here in chapter three about mercerism. Evidently, the humanoid robot constituted a solitary predator. Rick liked to think of them that way, made his job palatable. In retiring, i.e. killing an Andy, he did not violate the rule of life laid down by Mercer. You shall kill only the killers. Mercer had told them the year empathy boxes first appeared on Earth, and in Mercerism, as it evolved into full theology, the concept of the killers had grown insidiously. In Mercerism, an absolute evil plucked at the threadbare cloak of the tottering, ascending old man, but it was never clear who or what this evil presence was. A Mercerite sensed evil without understanding it. Put another way, a Mercerite was free to locate the nebulous presence of the killers wherever he saw fit. So for Mercerism, there is a rule of life. You shall kill only the killers. And that sounds a little Old Testament law-ish and the idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or life for a life. But it's maybe not really that Old Testament-ish after all when we look at it because there's this idea that the you could kind of make whoever you want to be the killers there too. That, that that could mean different things to different people. But in the Old Testament, it's pretty cut and dry what that would actually mean. In Mercerism, not so much. There's also this idea that Mercer, that, that a Mercerite sensed evil without understanding. Or put another way, a Mercerite was free to locate the nebulous presence of the killers wherever he saw fit. This seems dangerous to me. Seems a bit too subjective in what the killers might be and what the killers might mean to one might not mean that to the others. The, the concept of the killers has grown insidiously, which means that it has grown in a gradual, subtle way, but with harmful effects. So I'm not sure if people modify their definition of what the killers within mercerism is to justify their actions or, or what is going on, but we know that that's what Deckard is doing. But the androids have killed their masters, so they must be, by any definition, killers. In fact, continuing in chapter 3, we read this. For Deckard, an escaped human robot, which had killed its master, which had been equipped with an intelligence greater than that of many human beings, which had no regard for animals, which possessed no ability to feel empathetic joy for another life, form success, or grief at its defeat. For that, that, for him, epitomized the killers. And also to continue our discussion on Mercerism, we have to introduce a new character. His name is John Isidore. He lives alone in an abandoned apartment building and is often referred to in the book as a chicken head because he was unable to pass an IQ test, but he works for the animal, animal vet, Mr. Hannibal Sloat, and he drives Mr. Sloat's truck. However, Mr. Sloat only appears to be a real veterinarian. Instead, he's actually a repairman for robotic animals like Deckard's sheep. So most of the times when people are claiming to have real animals, they really don't have real animals. So if something goes wrong with them, they can't have a repairman come out. So Mr. Sloat comes in his veterinary truck and picks up the robotic animals and takes them back to fix them. 
Everybody thinks they've gone to the vet. They're still just keeping up that charade of having a real animal and having that success and having that status. And Isidore just feels fortunate to be able to have a job and a boss that treats him as a person because there are many people who were unable to pass the IQ tests that were put in uh, custodial institutes, we're told, we're, we're told, that are called the Institute of Special Trade Skills of America. The word special always used to describe such persons is what we're told. Again, now, we also ask the main question of this, this book, what does it mean to be truly human? Are these special people truly human? We see here that some people and androids that are, are, are considered less than human, or at least not fully or truly human because of their intelligence, because of their abilities uh, and what they can do and what they can't do. And at one point, Isidore turns off the TV because the ads directed at the remaining regulars frightened him. They informed him in a countless procession of ways that he, a special, wasn't wanted. He had no use. Oh, that is so sad. And unfortunately, in 2022 America, for some, it may still be true. With so much divide and the way that we treat other people, not just those who are quote-unquote special, but the way that we treat those who we disagree with or who are different than us or who are other than us, we may look at such people as unwanted or of no use. But this should never be the case. Every life has value, and we should treat everyone with dignity and respect and Christians should be leading this charge. We should be setting the example of how to treat people and how to treat people graciously and peacefully and how to interact in a way that, that, that is, 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 um, is respectful and gracious to those that even we disagree with. But that's not always the case. Sadly, people who claim the name Christian sometimes treat other people as less than or worthless or call them stupid or other degrading names from one side or the other side of the aisle, wherever you may be. And then there's damage done to the, not only the, to the witness of those people, but there's also damage done to the witness of Jesus Christ and who he is. And when we do damage to that, we damage our own reputation. We damage Jesus's reputation. Then people don't have a correct understanding of who he is and how he loves and how he cares for people and how we should treat people and things get messed up. Now, there are plenty of people in this world that I disagree with, but I hate none of them. I make no degrading social media posts about such people, and neither should you. As Christians, we are called to be peacemakers, not intentionally causing division, hurt, and separation, but coming alongside and trying to make peace. There is something that could be said here, however, that Jesus will divide people. He says so. That on the account of his name, family, friends, loved ones will turn against each other. That those, because people believe in Jesus, some other people will turn against them. That will cause division. Those who follow Jesus and those who do not. That causes problems and divisions amongst people. That's just unavoidable. But what is avoidable is you, the Christian, making that gap of division larger and larger and larger. We as Christians are called to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus and Scripture. We do not compromise on what Jesus taught, but at the same time we're called to love and to witness to those whom we are divided with. We don't belittle them, we don't insult them, we do not cause further damage or divide. Instead, we love. We are gracious. 
we set aside what we want in order to serve others. We are selfless, not selfish. We seek to reach those who do not know Jesus, not push them further away. May we be a people who truly reflect the image of Jesus Christ, not doing further damage to his reputation and witness. I think that's a rant worth going on here, and I think it's something that's needed in today's world. I think it's worthwhile. Let's get back to the book. We see in chapter 2 a beautifully heartbreaking account of John Isidore and his loneliness. Beautiful in how the story is told, but heartbreaking in the context of what is told. Reread this. He's getting ready in the morning to go to work, and he turns off his TV set, and then we read this about John Isidore. Silence. It flashed from the woodwork and the walls. It smote him with an awful total power, as if generated by a vast mill. It rose from the floor, up out of the tattered gray wall-to-wall carpeting. It unleashed itself from the broken and semi-broken appliances in the kitchen, the dead machines which hadn't worked, and all the time Isidore had lived there. From the useless pole lamp in the living room, it oozed out, meshing with the empty and wordless descent of itself from the fly-speckled ceiling. It managed, in fact, to emerge from every object within his range of vision as if the silence meant to supplant all things tangible. Hence it assailed not only his ears but his eyes as he stood by the inert TV set he experienced the silence as visible and in its own way, alive. Alive. He had oft, he had often its austere approach before, but it came, but when it came, it bust in without subtlety and evidently unable to wait. The silence of the world could not rein back its greed. Not any longer. Not when it had virtually won. That is beautiful writing, but a heartbreaking account. Now, we've discussed loneliness before. We've discussed it several times. It's an idea that comes up often within science fiction because life can be lonely and fiction reflects life. So it's an idea that we've come across many times, but I think it's one that's worth discussing here. In Genesis 2, we've read this before and talked about this, but in Genesis 2, Adam is lonely. He names all the animals, but no suitable companion is found. There's nothing else like him in all creation for him to have a genuine relationship with, and he is lonely. In Genesis 2.18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. Adam yearns. He longs for a relationship with someone like him. I believe this comes from Adam being made in God's image, at least part of it, that, that God, even before creation, is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living within perfect unity, having a family, a Father, and a Son, and a Holy Spirit. They, they live in, in perfect relationship with one another. And when we are made in God's image, part of what that means is that we are made to be in relationship not only with God, not only in relationship with our Creator, but we're also made to be in relationship with other people, to be in other to, to be in relationship with other beings like we are. In Genesis one twenty seven we read, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image God created them, male and female, God created them. Well, let's get into that a little bit more. What are what does it truly mean, actually mean to be made in God's image. What does it mean that, that we are made in the image of God? 
there are some there there are three prevailing theories or views on what it means for people to be created in the image of God. There's the functional view, the relational view, and the substantial view. The relational view looks to the overarching importance that the Bible places on salvation coming through a relationship with God. So the relationship humans can have with God, as best as we can tell, is different than the relationship other created creatures have with God. We seem to have a different relationship with God than birds do. We have a different relationship with God than fish do, and et cetera. So, so we have something within us, since we are created in God's image, that has an, enabled us to have a relationship with God that is different than other things that are not created in God's image uh, than the relationship that they have with God. And as we saw, Adam was lonely until Eve is created. Then there's a sense of completeness, which happens through relationship. This means that it's through relationships with other people and relationship with God that the divine image is expressed. So God, through the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lives in perfect relationship and perfect unity. As we have seen, and since we are made in God's image, we're also made for relationships not only with God, but also with other human beings, also with other beings like we are. That's what the relational view says. The functional view is seen... And the function of people taking charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground in Genesis one twenty nine. So humans are commanded to take charge of creation. And the functional view affirms that people are God's representatives or agents in the world, that we are given authority to share in God's administration or rule over Earth's creatures and resources. So that is the function that we have, and God has given that function to us as part of being made in his image. The third view is the substantial view, which states that humans have a substance within us that's created in the image of God. Now, this substance would be the spiritual makeup of a human being, that is, the soul. Since humans have this spiritual substance, they're capable of thought and language and reasoning and creativity and thinking and communication and etc which are the same capacities that God has so in this way we are created in God's image that we have a spiritual part within us we have a soul that enables us to do all these different things that God does personally i subscribe to the multifaceted view which argues that the functional view the relational view and the substantial view are all valid views and I actually believe that all three are interrelated. That we have, can have a relationship with God. Why? Because we have a substance within us that is different than other created beings have. We can have a um, we we can have functions to take care of the earth. Why? Because we have something that is within us that enables us to do that, and we have a relationship with God and others that helps us understand what our function is and how we're to take care of God's creation. We're enabled and we can do all those things because we do have a soul. So I think that all three of these views are related and connected to one another. And I don't think there's just one that is correct. And of course, the, 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 the discussion of what it means for humans to be made in the image of God is of relevance in answering the main question of this book. What does it mean to be truly human? And for this discussion, the relational view is of utmost importance. Why is Isidore lonely? Why was Adam lonely? Would any Christian do better when isolated like Isidore, living 
alone in an abandoned apartment for a very long time, driving a truck out by yourself, picking up robotic animals for a very long time, having very little human actual interaction, being by yourself for the vast majority of the day, would we do any better being isolated in that same situation than Isidore has done? I say no. No, we wouldn't because we are made to be in relationship. Relationship with God, but also relationship with other human beings. We are created for relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that the relationship with a person takes the place of the relationship you should have with God, but it does mean that to be spiritually and emotionally healthy, we need to have true, authentic, honest, and loving relationships with other human beings. It's what Isidore needs. It's what I need. It's what you need. And why? Because of part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to be in relationship with other people. We're, we are relational beings that were created for that. It's part of what makes us truly human to be in community. But Isidore doesn't turn to God or to other people. He tries to leave to go to work and reread this. He reached for the doorknob that opened the way out into the onlet hall, then shrank back as he glimpsed the vacuity that is the empty space as the, of the rest of the building. It lay in wait for him. Out here, the force which he had felt busily penetrating his specific apartment. God, he thought, and reached out the door. He was not ready for the trip up those clanging stairs to the empty roof where he had no animal. The echo of himself ascending. The echo of nothing. Time to grasp the handles, he said to himself, and cross the living room to the black empathy box. Now, empathy plays a huge part in this book. I cannot overstate how much empathy plays a huge part in this book. The empathy box is described in this way when Isidore turns it on. The usual faint smell of negative ions surged from the power supply. He breathed in eagerly, already buoyed up. Then the cathode ray tube glowed like an imitation Phoebe TV feeble TV image, a college form made of apparently random colors, trails, and configurations, which until the handles were grasped, amounted to nothing. So taking a deep breath to steady himself, he grasped the twin handles. Next, Isidore sees a hilly place on the TV and an old man that's described as more or less in a human form walking up the hill. And this man is Wilbur, Wilbur Mercer, the founder of Mercerism, And as the story goes, uh, his foster parents found him floating in a raft off the coast somewhere in New England, or maybe Mexico, who really knows at this point. And he also is said to have the ability to bring uh, dead animals back to life. And we read this. But alas, the bones had regained flesh. The empty eye pits had filled up and new eyes had been seen. Well, meantime, the restored beaks and mouths had cackled, barked, and Kurt and Catterwald. They say it's because of a node in Mercer's brain, and those identified as the killers tried to remove that node through radi- radiation, but this also plunged Mercer into a different world, they say is what happened. So we're told that through a time reversal faculty, Mercer was able to bring animals back to life, but that faculty was outlawed. 
nevertheless, there are certain messianic overtones to Mercer and his ability to bring back animals to life that have died, bring back things that have died. He can bring them back to life. So Mercer is in this different world, in this different dimension. It happened through this radiation. And when you touch the empathy box, you can merge with Mercer and you can go kind of to where he is and kind of experience who he is. It's very, very, very strange. So here's some more information later on in chapter seven about uh, Mercer. Some think that he isn't a human being. He is evidently an archetype entity from the stars, superimposed in our culture by a cosmic template. So who really knows who Mercer is and where he comes from and and what's up with that? We really never get those answers to that and, and what it is. But back to chapter two in Isidore and the empathy box. Isidore sees the hill and Mercer, but then is almost transported there as he gradually experienced a waning of the living room in which he stood. The dilap- dilapidated furniture and walls ebbed out as, and he ceased to experience them at all. And then Isidore no longer sees Mercer, but becomes Mercer, or at least the figure of Mercer as he walks across the landscape. And this is called physical merging. And it's said to happen for every person everywhere who's holding on to an empathy box, that they have a mental and spiritual identification with Wilbur Mercer is what we're told. But the people holding the empathy box also experience a connection with each other. And we read about Isidore that he experienced them, the others, incorporated the babbles of their thoughts, heard in his own brain the noise of their many individual existences. They and he cared about one thing. This fusion of their mentalities oriented their attention on the hill, the climb, the need to ascend. So as he starts climbing up this hill, Isidore has rocks thrown at him, not in the real world, but in what I can best describe as a virtual world where he is merging with Mercer. Something very Matrix-like, actually, where his physical body is in one place, but he's uploaded somewhere else and can still experience things there. So, so one of the rock hits the figure's arm, but Isidore feels the pain. And we are told that the tormentor, the old antagonist, manifesting themselves as the, at the periphery of his vision are the ones who are throwing the rocks. They are trying to keep Isidore from reaching the top where he will see future and past blurred together. So so they have this here in Isidore's body is in one place, but his mind, and he is virtually in another place, just very, I think it's just so Matrix-like in this idea here. And when he gets hit with a rock in Mercer's world, he feels it in the real world. Again, something that's very Matrix-like. But anyway, Isidore, even with all of that, starts to feel lonely, trying to climb the mountain alone, but his in this loneliness, we are told that the mutual babble of everyone else in fusion broke the illusion of aloneness. Well, that's a great line. The illusion of aloneness. That is what aloneness is for the Christian. It's an illusion because God is always with us. And we're also part of the universal church, that we have a, a, a connection with people who, who are part of the church as well. And, and God and his spirit is always with us, that we are truly not alone. Together, the voices help Isidore push on, but he lets go of the handles. He doesn't want to, but he has to go to work. 
And when he lets go, his arm hurts and is bleeding from where the rock struck him. So there is some way in which these things are real, or at least in, again, the style of the Matrix, they appear so real that it makes them feel real in their mind, so it makes it real in the real world because you can't separate the one from the other. So I think the best way to describe what happens with an empathy box is merging with Mercer in something like the Matrix. That makes a lot of sense to me. But when he lets go and he is taking care of his arm, he hears a TV somewhere in the building. Something that he's never heard, that he hasn't heard before. There's a TV on in the building. So he actually goes and he, he grabs some butter to take to whoever it is as a housewarming gift. And, but he's also nervous, which, which I think is a very sweet thing, actually. He, he goes and he grabs some butter. He wants to have a gift to give someone that's moved into his apartment building because he's the only one there. And he's living there and he's lonely and he, he hears someone else has moved in and he wants to give them something. I think that's a really beautiful thing. But... He's also, Isidore's also nervous that he, that whoever is here will find out that he's a chicken head and then won't want to talk to him because for some reason, and Isidore wonders why is this, but for some reason, no one wants to talk to him when they find out that he's a chicken head. That makes me really sad. But before we find out who it is, chapter three cuts to Deckard going to a pet shop and longing to own the ostrich that is there. But he sees the price tag. We're not told what it is, but he sees the price tag and he just moves on. He's 15 minutes late for work because of the window shopping at the pet store. He really wants a live animal. The main points of interest in this chapter is that Deckard finds out that Dave Holden, the department's chief bounty hunter, is in the hospital with a laser track through his spine. He's been shot in the spine with a laser uh, gun. And what has has shot him is one of the new Rosen Association androids, the Nexus 6 model, the newest and best model that's so good, in fact, that many police agencies have called for their production to be ended because it's so hard to tell if they are in, truly an android or not. They discuss if the new androids can pass the Voight Comp empathy test. And I, again, cannot overstate the importance of empathy and also the importance of the Voight Kampf empathy test in, in here in this book, in Androids. It's the only way to tell if an Android is really an Android or not. Now, an intelligence test used to work, but it's no longer sufficient to tell humans from robots uh, since the 1970s is what we're told. And in chapter three, we, we read this though. And this is why empathy is so important and why they give the androids an empathy test. We read this. Empathy, evidently, only existed within the human community. In chapter 11, Deckard is having a conversation with an android named Garland. And Rick says, you androids don't exactly cover for each other in times of stress. And Garland snapped. I think you're right. It would seem we lack a specific talent you humans possess. I believe it's called empathy. So what Philip K. Dick is arguing here is that to be truly human, you have to, you must have empathy, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. According to Wikipedia, empathy is the capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing from within their frame of reference. That is the capacity to place oneself in another's position. According to Wikipedia, sympathy is the perception, understanding, and reaction to the distress or need of another life form. 
So sympathy is feeling bad for something. Uh, that what your action is going to be that, that something's in distress or something is is in trouble. Empathy is actually being able to put put yourself in that place to feel what that person would be feeling that is in trouble or that is in distress. It's more than just feeling, but it's able actually the capacity to be able to say what would what would that person what would would that person be feeling in this moment and to be able to feel what other people would be able to feel to be able to have empathy. The androids though in this book don't have empathy. They don't have empathy for people or animals. The idea of androids not having empathy for animals especially is is common throughout the book. In a world where there are very few real animals left, the androids show no concern or care for harming a real animal. They have no empathy for living things. But it seems to me more well, it's more problematic than the androids not having empathy for animals is that the androids don't have empathy for humans. And this idea of empathy and the importance that it plays will be seen throughout the rest of the book and we'll focus on it more. Continuing on into chapter four, we see that Deckard is a bit nervous that if the androids were good enough to get Dave, they might be good enough to get him. In this chapter, Deckard and his supervisors decide that he is going to Seattle to the Rosen Corporation, the company that makes the androids, to give the Voight-Kampf empathy test to one of the new Nexus 6 androids to see if the new model is capable of passing the empathy test or not. If they can pass it, that means they're human. If they can't, that means they're an android. Deckard is actually supposed to test both humans and 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 real people with the Voight-Kampf uh, empathy test, but he will not know who is human and who is android. So they'll just come in, he'll give them the test, and he'll tell them what he has found. And Bryant, who's uh, somebody who works with Deckard, starts to tell him, when you run the Voight-Kampf scale up there, if one of the humans fails to pass it, But Deckard interrupts. That can't happen. Bryant goes on to explain that some people who are schizophrenic have failed the test and will come up to be androids. And this seems to be the only people, the only real humans, who would not pass the Voight-Kampf. But I wonder, I wonder this. How would people in the real world, people in 2022 America, people in 2022 anywhere in the world, how would people like you and me and our friends and family, would we, would we be able to pass such an empathy test if it were given to us today? Maybe some could, I think, and maybe some couldn't, perhaps. But, re- but research has shown that we, at least in America, live in a society where empathy is on the decline. On the American Psychological Association's website, you can watch a video of Dr. Sarah Conrath or read the transcripts of the podcast that she is on titled The Decline of Empathy and the Rise of Narcissism. Some of the highlights from that discussion that would be um, pertain to our purpose here for, for our podcast would be that, um, that, that Dr. Uh, Conrath and Caitlin... Luna, who's the host of the podcast, explain, um, they talk together, and Caitlin explains this. There's scientific research to back up the notion that Americans are caring less and less for others. For instance, one study found a steep decline in empathy among young people from 1979 to 2009. And, and here, here's just a side note. We'll get back into this main discussion later. But here is a side note. 
At one point, uh, Luna asks this, I want to touch on something you just mentioned. I found really interesting about how reading fiction can make you more empathetic. Do you have more to share about that? About why that would be the case? Because you almost think it might be nonfiction. I don't know. What is it about fiction that makes people more empathetic or increases that trait? And Dr. Conrath responds with this. Overall, the research is finding that just reading in general is helpful, but fiction in particular because it allows us to imagine other people's lives. Oftentimes in, fictions you're getting, in fiction, you're getting a window into what's going on in someone's mind. You can almost see the world through their eyes and practice what it might be like to be another person. That person could be somebody really, really different. So there you have it. Reading fiction is good. It can make you more empathetic. And reading science fiction is even better because, after all, it is the beautiful genre. Anyway, I found that really interesting and worth mentioning here on a podcast where we're discussing fictional works and how reading fiction can actually make you more empathetic because you are literally placing yourself in another person's shoes in another person's place when you're reading about the book, uh, when you're reading a fiction book. So I thought that was interesting. Anyway, back about to the decline in, in empathy. So why why was this the decline here from 1979 to 2009? Why was there a a decline in empathy? It's explained that um, college students that that this survey was done with college students, and it explained it explained that over these decades that in 1979 college students self-identified as being more empathetic than the people, than college students in 2009 who took the same survey. So they take a survey and, and give themselves a grade. And the people in 2009 gave themselves a lower grade saying that they were less concerned about people uh, than um, the past generation said that they were concerned for other people and they were empathetic. So why is this? Why has there been a decline in empathy? It's really interesting. They discuss some things on that in that article and on that podcast. Uh, they discuss the idea that young people think they're under more pressure and they have more difficulties than anyone else. So they're more concerned with what they are going through than what others are going through. So I've got a lot of pressure. No one else understands what I'm going through. I've got so much to do. I'm so busy. I'm, 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 I'm. And that leads to less thinking of others, which leads to less empathy. Empathy. Young people also spend more time focusing on schoolwork or other things and spend less time than previous generations volunteering for various organizations within the community. So they're, they're just not getting out in the community and volunteering as much, which they believe has led to a decline in empathy. They also discussed something that was really interesting, the, what I would call a fear of the other mentality. We've talked about the fear of the other here, but they discussed what I would call a fear of the other mentality that began for many Americans after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Now, before reading this, this article, this transcript here, I, I hadn't thought much of the effect of 9-11 playing in a role for the decline of empathy in America, but it makes sense. There was so much fear and hatred and disdain for people who were different than what the, the different than us, than lived in different parts of the country. There's even... Um, some hatred that was going on in some parts of America for people who just were not born in America after 9-11, that everyone was the other. So it makes sense that after something like that, where we label everyone other and the enemy, that we would have a decline in empathy. 
I thought that was really interesting. Conrath and Luna have a very fascinating discussion on this. And if you want to listen or read more, you can go to the APA.org and search for empathy. This podcast was a second leak that came up when I searched for this a while back. So uh, hopefully that'll help you if you want to know some more about that. But another thing that I think contributes to the decline of empathy in America is the amount of time, the amount of time that we spend on electronical devices, computers, phones, tablets, those things take those things take up hours, literal hours of our everyday life. And perhaps the more time we spend on machines, the more we become like machines. People say things from behind a screen they wouldn't think or dare to say somebody face-to-face because anonymity makes them feel safe and it makes them feel comfortable. And when you can say something and negative or something hurtful about someone, but you never have to see their reaction, you never have to see the hurt in their face, you never have to see the pain that you've caused them, you can just say things from behind your screen and laugh, you're not thinking about them as a person. You, you, you stop thinking about them as being human. You just think of them as someone out there somewhere that that whatever, who cares what you say because uh, you're never going to have to see how that affects or hurts that person. But I think the more time that we spend on machines, the more we become like machines. The less time we spend in the presence of people, the less empathetic we become. And my goodness, the COVID pandemic has certainly not helped with this. One would think that a worldwide pandemic might increase the empathy level of a society as we're all going through this together and we can all put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and we can all have experienced suffering and loss and sickness during this time. So you think that we should be more empathetic towards other people, but I think it's actually had the opposite effect. It's just divided us further. For those who don't take COVID seriously enough versus those who take it very seriously. Those who are opposed to the vaccine versus those who are not. Maskers versus anti-maskers. Roganers versus non-roganers. This pandemic has just created more fear of the other mentality. And that never leads to an increase in empathy. That never leads to an increase in empathy. Would people from America today pass the Voight-Comp empathy test? I don't know. I truly wonder and seriously doubt if we'd all be able to pass. But I know that as followers of Jesus, we should be able to pass with flying colors. Because I think this is part of what Philip K. Dick gets right. Part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to be truly human, is to have empathy. And that empathy should be multiplied for the Christian. We should be people of empathy. Possessing the ability to understand and share the feelings of another, we should be able to pass that test. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to have empathy and have a lot of it. Empathy makes us human and we are only truly human when we are following Jesus. We are only truly human when we are following Jesus. Now this may be a bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it's one worth going down. Why are we only truly human when we are following Jesus? Well, maybe I should define what I mean by being truly human. By truly human, I mean that we are human to the fullest, that we are living the human life to the maximum, that we are human the way that humans were intended to be. So to be truly human is the way that humans were intended to be. 
Now, why can this only happen when we follow Jesus? Stick with me as I hopefully explain. Sin does damage. Sin does damage to relationships. Specifically, sin does damage to three relationships. The first relationship that sin does damage to is the relationship between God and the person who does the sin. There's, a, there, there's damage that is done to that relationship. There's some brokenness that happens. There's some separation that happens between a person and God when, they commit, when that person commits sin. The second kind of relationship that sin does damage to is the relationship between people. So if I were to commit a sin against you, if I were to lie or steal something from you or hurt you in some way, that the relationship that I would have with you would be damaged that we would have some brokenness, that we would have some hurt in that relationship, that, that there would be some damage there. So sin does damage to the relationship people have with God. It does damage to the relationship that people have with other people. Third, sin does damage to the relationship I have with myself. Sin does damage to me as a human. When I sin, I think less of myself. My self-esteem and self-worth decline. Sin does damage to who God has created me to be because in God's original creation, people are not marred with sin and therefore were who God truly wanted them to be in God's original creation intent. Before the, before the fall, Adam and Eve, truly human. After the fall, the only way to have a proper relationship with yourself, the only way to be truly human is through the forgiveness of sin and the victory over sin you can have by the sanctifying grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. To be truly human, to be all that it means to be human to the, full, to, to the fullest only happens when you follow Jesus. See, I think what God is trying to do ultimately is to take us back to what he intended us to be. Not people that are fallen, not people that are sinful, but people that are holy as he is holy, that people who are living in a perfect relationship with him and a perfect relationship with others and a perfect relationship with themselves. That is who God wants us to be. And when we are doing that, we are living a truly human experience. And that's what Jesus has. Jesus is living the, the fullest. He, he is human to the fullest. He is living the truest human experience. And that's what God wants us to have as well, because Jesus is like us in every way, but without sin. When we sin, that doesn't make us, you know, some people, you, you may have heard this saying before, to err is human, or to sin, to make mistakes is human. We're all humans and we all sin and we all make mistakes. Well, that may be true that we are human and we sin and we make mistakes and, and all that. That is true, but that is not what makes us human. As a matter of fact, I would argue that's what makes us less than fully human. When we sin, we're not being human to the fullest. We are being less than what God intended for us to be in the human experience. And that's why Jesus lives the human life to the fullest, because he lives it without sin the way that God intended all of us to live it. So to be truly human means that we need to be like Jesus. That only happens when we follow Jesus and can be forgiven and can have his grace come and cleanse us as we grow in grace and knowledge and we can be holy as he is holy. And I believe that empathy is a part of what makes us live to the fullest, to what makes us truly human. But we are losing empathy in America. 
Could a non-Christian pass the Voight-Comp empathy test in 2022 America? I don't know. I think some of them probably could. Could a Christian? Well, they better. They better. We should be able to do that as we seek to follow Jesus and to treat others as though they are better than we are. Not looking to our own selfish gain and ambitions and motives, but looking to others and where they are and putting their needs above our own. Back to the book, and Deckard lands in Seattle at the Rosen Association building and meets a a woman who says her name is Rachel Rosen. Deckard is quickly enamored with the large collection of what Rachel claims to be live animals that the Rosen Corporation has. The way the situation sets in for Deckard, he realizes that his test to determine if the Nexus 6 Android can pass the Voight Comp empathy test will greatly influence the direction and production of the Rosen Corporation. Deckard asks to see the first subject to test with the Voight Comp, and Rachel asks um, if she can stay and see uh, when the test is given. Then Deckard explains a little bit about the test and what the Voight-Kampf actually is, and here's what we read. This, he held up the flat adhesive disc with its trailing wires, measures capillary dilation in the facial area. We know this to be a primary automatic response to the so-called shame or blushing reaction to a morally shocking stimulus. It can't be controlled voluntarily, as can skin conductivity, respiration, and cardiac rate. He showed her the other instrument, a pencil beam light. This records fluctuations of tension within the eye muscle. Simultaneous with the blushing phenomenon, there generally can be found small but but detectable movement of, and these can't be found in androids, Rachel said. They're not uh, engendered by the stimuli questions, no, although biologically they do exist, potentially. Rachel then asks Deckard to give her the test. She's actually the first subject they have selected to take the Voight-Kampf. Which brings us to chapter 5, where we have an entire chapter that asks the question, human or android? Is Rachel a human or an android? And after many quick, unrelated questions that are meant to show Rachel's response, the test reveals that Rachel is an android. She came close to beating the test, but still the new Nexus 6 model cannot fool an experienced bounty hunter like Deckard. But he understands how it could cause some problems for others who may not have the same kind of experience that he has. But the difference between android and human is still a difference of empathy because the androids do not have a soul. They don't have that. But we're not going to get into the discussion of the soul here. We're going to save that for our next episode where we talk about Clifford D. Samak's book, A Choice of Gods, and we will get into the soul and we'll get into a lot there because that's a main point of topic in that book. So that's just something to look forward to for next episode. But Rachel fails the test. She is one of these Nexus 6 models and she almost passes, but she can't fool Deckard. In chapter six, we go back to Isidore, and he meets a girl named Pris Stratton, who actually looks like Rachel uh, Rosen from um, the Rosen Corporation. So they're basically built off the same um, the same mold. So they they look very much alike, even though they have different hair and different styles and things like that. They still are very similar in appearance. She even says that she's Rachel at one point, even though she's not. Her name is Pris Stratton. 
And she's looking for a room to live in the abandoned building where Isidore is in. And she is, of course, um, one of the escaped androids. That's why she is in our story. And we learn a little more about about mercerism from Isidore in Chapter 6. Isidore says that mercerism is even for people like him who haven't been able to pass the IQ test. He says that mercerism doesn't care about that. It doesn't care if he is a chicken head or not. But Pris sees this as a major objection to mercerism. But it's actually one of the main reasons that Isidore embraces it, because it accepts even him. And in that way, mercerism is comparable to God's kingdom. God invites all to become a part of his kingdom, to become a part of his family. No matter how smart or not you are, no matter where you were born or what you look like or how much money you have or don't have, If you have fame or not, if you have influence or not, none of that matters. God offers all to become a part of his family. That invitation is given to all. In Luke 2, 30-32, Simeon, a man at the temple, tells Mary and Joseph this. Soon after the birth of Jesus, he tells Mary and Joseph this. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the light of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Jesus has come for the Gentiles, but also for Israel. He's come for everyone because everyone can now be a part of God's family. In Acts 26-23 we read that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So God is offering his kingdom, his family is now open to everyone. Everyone has that invitation extended towards them, no matter who they are, where they come from, any kind of talent they may have or not have, or or whatever it may be, no matter how smart they are, no matter how smart they are, all those things, none of that matters. You're invited to be a part of God's family no matter who you are. God's kingdom is open to all, everyone, everywhere, regardless of labels or supposed limitations. But another objection that androids have to mercerism is that they cannot participate in it. We read that in chapter 16, that the androids, since they are not not human and cannot experience empathy, they're incapable of participating in mercerism, and that's another reason why the androids don't like that. In chapter 7, We go back to John Isidore, and Isidore is wondering uh, what he can do to impress Pris. He likes her. He doesn't know that she's an android, and he wants to impress her. So he thinks about cooking for her, and he he wonders what he can do um, for her and how he can help her when we read this. She may need help. Can I give her any help, he he asked himself. A special, a chicken head. What do I know? I can't marry, and I can't emigrate, and the dust will eventually kill me. I have nothing to offer. Isidore, again, we see it's so sad, Isidore's account here, because of his low IQ, because he is a quote-unquote special, he's not allowed to have the same rights as others. He's not allowed to marry, he's not allowed to emigrate, he has to stay on earth, he can only have certain jobs. That's a society that is wrong. A society that is very wrong. Everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. Everyone. And the most vulnerable of people should not be disregarded, but those are the people that we should make sure are being taken care of. Those are considered the quote-unquote least among us, 
Those are the people that should not be ignored or overlooked, but instead we should go out of our way to make sure that that they are being taken care of, to make sure that they are being treated well, to make sure that they are protected. The society of androids gets their treatment of Isidore and people like him wrong. May we not make the same mistake. There's also something in this chapter that's worth mentioning. While Isidore is out picking up fake animals to repair, he talks to some people. He, his, his boss is one of those people that he talks to about a man named Buster Friendly. Now, Buster Friendly is the ultimate late-night talk show host kind of guy. He's on TV and radio all the time. Quite literally all the time, Buster actually puts out, we're told in Chapter 6, Buster puts out 46 hours of new show a day. Yes, 46 hours of new show a day. I wish I could keep up with that pace, but it's never going to come close. Sorry, folks. It's not going to happen on this podcast. But people wonder how Buster does that. They, They think that maybe he, like Mercer, is immortal, but of course that's not it. Buster's just an android. Actually, he's more than one android. They're built off the same mold, so they all look alike. But the goal for Buster is to put out so much new content that no one can stop watching. Big TV and radio and today, big social media and YouTube, they never want you to stop watching or listening. They want you glued to that screen or to those radio waves. In the book, Isidore is so lonely, he watches Buster all the time and feels as though he knows Buster. But that's not a real substitute for friendship and relationship. It doesn't work for Isidore and it doesn't work for us today. There is no substitute for person-to-person interaction. It doesn't happen through TV, it doesn't happen through social media, it doesn't happen through YouTube, none of that. There is no substitute for that. There just isn't. Also, Buster aims to keep people's focus off the real world around them to what is going on. The old idea here of bread and circus. Keep people distracted with food and keep people distracted with entertainment. That's the idea of bread and circus to keep them entertained, keep them distracted so they don't pay attention to what is really going on. But avoiding problems or pretending that they don't exist does not solve problems. Well, are you being distracted from issues or sins in your life that you aren't dealing with? Is there something distracting you from living fully for God? And of course, how are you spending your time? Are you trying to watch 46 hours of programming a day? Well, of course, not that much. But in all seriousness, are you glued to the screen? Is there a better way you could be using your time? Because how we use our time is a theological issue. What are we doing to help others with our time? What are we doing to intentionally grow closer to Jesus with our time? How are we intentionally worshiping God with our time? How can you use best use your time to serve others and become more like Jesus? I doubt that comes from most of the things that we are watching on our screens. And I'm just not asking these questions to you. I'm asking these questions for, for me as well. I'm asking questions here. How am I spending my time? And am I using it as effectively as I could and to be able to grow? And how are you using your time? Is it as is it effect, it effective as you could? Is there a better way you could be spending your time? Out on his route, Isidore picks up a uh, cat that dies on the way to the vet. Actually, he thinks it's a robotic cat 
but it's really not. It's actually a real cat that dies. They talk to the wife who owns the cat, and Isidore actually suggests to make a robotic replica of the cat. Since her real cat has died, we'll just make a robotic replica of it, and you'll never be able to tell the difference. And the woman agrees to do that, but asks that they never tell her husband. So there you go. Somebody else who wants to keep up that appearance of having that real animal, keep up that status with that. And we see that here in this uh, this customer that they have. Moving on to chapter eight, and Deckard is continuing to look for the other escaped Nexus 6 androids when he gets a call from Rachel Rosen, who asks to come along on the hunt with Deckard. She thinks that a human approaching the escaped androids might end badly for them all. But they might respond better if an android is there to talk with him. Deckard tells her that he'll take that into consideration. But she does, he doesn't allow her to come along on the bounty hunt for now. Then one of the escaped androids, who uh, Polakov, he poses as a cop and tries to kill Deckard. But Deckard actually is able to retire the android before it retires him. The next escaped androids on, android on Deckard's list to retire is Luba Luft, who is an opera singer. Deckard decides he will try to retire Luba and see how it goes before he accepts Rachel's offer for help or not. So he's going to try to get one more, and if it goes okay, he's not going to contact Rachel. If he has some struggles, he'll give her a call. But there's something else that we see here that's worth noting. Deckard starts thinking of Rachel. He is has an internal dialogue with himself, even, that we read as to whether or not he finds her attractive. And he admits that he has found some female androids attractive. So Deckard is struggling with, well, I don't know if it'd be right to say here that Deckard is struggling with lust because he doesn't seem to be struggling at all. He just has given in to lust as something that is okay. He doesn't look at lust as something that should be avoided. He's okay with it. He's accepted it as being all right. But it should not be so for the Christian. And why not? Well, in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we read this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Lust in the sense Deckard has, lust, Webster describes it as this, a strong feeling of sexual desire. That kind of lust, when it is not for your spouse, is a problem for the Christian. It comes from the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, it does not come from the Father, but comes from the world, and it is a problem for the Christian. It is something for the Christian that should be avoided. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches the following in Matthew 5, 27-30. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. A couple things here. 
First, when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's not meant to be taken literally. If it were, let's be honest, we would all have no eyes or hands, right? That, that's where we would be right now. But what Jesus is saying is that we need to go to extremes to get rid of things that lead us to sin. But if my right eye causes me to sin and I gouge it out, the problem is still there because now I can just use my left eye to sin. I've just removed an eye. I haven't removed the sin. I haven't taken care of the root of the problem because ultimately lust is an issue of the heart, not an issue of the eyes. What we need to do is change our hearts to crucify those parts of our sinful nature that lead us astray. Those are the parts we need to gouge out and cut off. Those parts that are within us that are sinful, those are the parts that need to be crucified. The second thing about this passage is that Jesus raises the bar. In verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. That's straight from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. But then Jesus tells you that, says this, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here, Jesus, he, he doesn't say just don't commit adultery. He says don't even think about committing adultery. But why? Because thoughts turn into actions. Actions start with thoughts. And Jesus is saying if you can have the right thoughts, then we don't have to be concerned with doing the wrong things because actions start as thoughts. So if you have the right thoughts, You'll do the right things, but if you have the wrong thoughts, perhaps those wrong thoughts will turn into wrong actions. And Jesus raises the standard, but he also makes the standard possible when the Holy Spirit is sent and can dwell within each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit makes it possible to think right thoughts and to avoid the wrong ones. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, and it makes resisting sin possible. It makes this idea of entire sanctification a reality where we can be fully filled with the love of God And where we are free to love God and to love others and to love ourselves fully and completely. And when we do that, we think the right thoughts and avoid the wrong ones. Like lust. Lust is a problem because, as I just said, these are thoughts and actions start with thoughts. All thoughts matter. Some people may say that there's no harm in just thinking about someone who's not your spouse in a sexual way because, well... You're just thinking about it. You're not actually doing anything. But I'm going to tell you, folks, all affairs start as thoughts. And if you're not thinking about people other than your spouse in a sexual way, you're not going to have an affair because you're not thinking about it. But if you're thinking about someone who's not your spouse in a sexual way, those are the seeds of an affair. That's how it starts. Those seeds are planted and may come to fruition then. So Jesus Is saying, don't just stop short of committing the act of an affair. He's saying, don't even start to think about having an affair because your thought life matters. What you think, your thought life matters. And we will see what Deckard's thoughts lead to and how they make a difference later in this book. Moving along in chapter 9, Deckard goes to the opera house that Luba Luft sings that, and he is amazed at how well she sings. She is just as good as the best that he's ever heard. He also has to make sure that Luba is an android, so he gives her the Voigtkampf test. Now, Luba claims that she is not an android. She says she's never even seen an android, and this chapter 
There's an interaction with Luba and Deckard that may be the most important interaction in the book. And sometimes it feels, sometimes in this conversation, it feels as though Deckard is the one getting tested and not Luba. At one point, we read this exchange. And an android, Deckard said, doesn't care what happens to another android. That's one of the indications we look for. Then, Miss Luce said, you must be an android. That stopped him. He stared at her. Because, she continued, your job is to kill them, isn't it? You're what they call, she tried to remember, a bounty hunter, Rick said. But I'm not an android. Luba asks him if he's taken the test and if he's passed. And he has taken the test and he has passed. Then she says that that could just be a false memory because androids are given false memories. So they just don't start having memories on the day they're made, but they have memories of a childhood and past experiences and things that they've done. And she wonders if Deckard passing the Voight-Kampf could be a fake memory. Luba wants Deckard to take the test before she does. But he can't because there's no one there to administer to it to him and, and to know how that it works. So it's a strange interview that Luba claims not to know English very well and asks for some German translations and she avoids answering questions. And Deckard asks a question about Luba dating someone and going over to his apartment. Then she pulls a gun out and accuses Deckard of being a sexual deviant instead of a police officer because he's asking questions about sex. And some of the questions have to do with sex questions as such as if you find your partner with a pornographic magazine and in one of the pictures there's a nude model on a bearskin rug how do you feel about this now the human response should be to what the the response that Deckard would be looking for for that question to know that you're a human he'd be looking for you to be upset that there's a bearskin rug because there's very few real animals left and if you have a bearskin rug there then that's a moral issue because how could you have a bearskin rug when there's only, maybe not even be many bears left alive in the world. So the response that they're looking for is not to be upset that your partner's lusting after people in pornographic magazines. The response they're looking for is to be upset that she's laying on a bearskin rug. The lust isn't the problem. The bearskin rug is. That's just another way that the societal ethics in this world are messed up. It's a way that they get some things not right. But Deckard asking these kinds of questions, Luba doesn't believe he really is who he says he is. So she calls a police officer who Deckard doesn't know, and the officer doesn't know him. So Deckard leaves with the police officer to clear things up, and Deckard is convinced that this is an android going to kill him because they're going to where the police station isn't, according to Deckard, but is according to this police officer, Officer Crams. But this is such an, an, an important interview for Deckard with Luba Luft because it's where he starts to examine himself. It's where he starts to ask himself, am I an android? Am I a human? And what does it mean to be human? And how should I treat others even if they are androids? And, and what should all that go into? So he starts to ask himself that, himself that question. That's really kind of the turning point in this book where he starts to ask some of those things. And in chapter 10, Deckard is arrested and booked at a police station he's never been to before and talks to an inspector, Garland, and meets a bounty hunter, Phil Resch. He doesn't know them. They don't know Deckard. They're in the same city. They both claim to be police officers. They don't know what's going on here. Garland uh, 
however, finds out that he's listed as the next android to retire on Deckard's list after Luba Luft. So he's got a list of androids to retire. Luba Luft was next. And then Garland is the one after that. So long story short, you can read it. There's not a whole lot of theological significance in there. But to move the story along, by the end of chapter 11, we learn that Garland is, in fact, an android and that Deckard was taken to a fake android-run police station that androids call when they're in trouble so they can come and help them out without getting the real police involved. So Garland, knowing he's on the bounty hunter's list, plans to kill Deckard and Phil Resch. But Resch actually is able to retire him before he retires them. And Resch wants to come work then for the real police station. He wants to come and work with Deckard. But there's question as to Resch's status. Is he human or is he an android? We will find out. And actually, Resch starts to question what he is. Resch and Deckard head out from the police station to go back to the opera house to retire Luba. And after uh, that, then Resch wants Deckard to give him the Voight comp to see if he's really a human or an android. Resch makes an argument that he is a human because he owns a real squirrel. And an android who is incapable of empathy, especially empathy towards animals, couldn't own a real animal and couldn't take care of it because android, because the androids only care about themselves and wouldn't be able to care and have a living animal and take care of it and actually get it to survive. And Deckard says animals need an environment of warmth to flourish. And androids cannot provide that. So in all but two cases that Decker knows of, when androids have real animals, the animals have died because they don't have this atmosphere of warmth that is needed. The androids cannot provide that. Side note here, it's interesting that the thought here is that... Uh, it's interesting here that the thought is, I can't be an android. The, the, here's what uh, Resh's thought is. I can't be an android because I'm not that self-centered. But actually, human beings are very, very self-centered. If being self-centered is a sign of being an android, then I know a lot of androids, right? <laughs> and also, at times, I might be an android because I can be selfish. I can be self-centered and have this. So it's so interesting, this idea of, well, I can't be an android because androids are so self-centered. What What is more self-centered than humans? What is, what is more self-centered than that? Um, and the question to the, the answer to that question here is androids, that, that they are even more self-centered than we are because they don't have the empathy that we do. So that's the answer there. But it's just funny to me that Rush's argument is, I can't be an android because I'm not that self-centered when humans can be very, very self-centered. Anyway, in chapter 12, Deckard and Rush find Luba Luft at a museum just down the street from the opera house. They're able to find her. And she admits to being an android while in the museum. Resch wants to kill Luba right there, but Deckard says to wait because they haven't given her a test, but Resch says they don't need to because she's admitted it. And he ends up shooting her in the stomach and Deckard finishes off retiring her. And this business of bounty hunting is starting to weigh on Deckard. After retiring Luba, Deckard and Resch have this conversation. Rick said, I'm getting out of this business. And going to what, says Resch. Anything. Infrastructure, underwriting, maybe I'll emigrate. Yes, he nodded. I'll go to Mars. But someone has to do this, Phil Rush pointed out. They can use androids. Much better if Andy's do it. I can't anymore. I've had enough. She was a wonderful singer. The planet could have used her. This is insane. 
And then Resh says, this is necessary. Remember, they kill humans in order to get away. And here we see Deckard having some empathy towards the androids. Becoming a bounty hunter is becoming a problem for Deckard, and it hasn't always been. On the first page of the book, Deckard's wife, Iran, actually calls Deckard a murderer hired by cops, to which he replies, I've never killed a human being in my life. And Iran replies, just those poor Andes. But now Deckard is struggling, which brings up an interesting question. Do we have a responsibility to be empathetic towards artificial intelligence or androids? This is a question I think we'll never have to answer because I don't think there will ever be a conscious machine in the way that human beings are conscious. And if they are only machines, then there's no obligation or duty or responsible to treat that which is machine like it is human. But I certainly understand how Deckard would be struggling with retiring something so human-like. We're seeing Deckard's empathy. We're seeing his humanness, that that these things appear to be so human that it's starting to weigh on him what he's doing. But Deckard is hoping that Resh will be an android because he's so cold and uncaring and his retiring of androids. So so Deckard's really hoping that Resh is a, that he's an android because he doesn't want to become like Resh. Deckard tells him, I see a pattern. The way you killed Garland and then the way you killed Luba. You don't kill the way I do. You don't try to. I know what it is. You like to kill. So Resh and Deckard agree to take tests to see if either is an android, but they are both human. And Deckard finds out that there isn't something wrong with Resh. There is something off about him. Although it's not something that's off in an android kind of way. Here's what we read. Rick said, I'm capable of feeling empathy for at least specific certain androids. Not for all of them, but one or two. For Luba Luft, as an example, he said to himself, so I was wrong. There's nothing unnatural or unhuman about Phil Resch's reaction. It's me. I wonder, he wondered, if any human has ever felt this way about an android. Retiring all these very human-like androids has taken its toll on Deckard, and the more the androids become more and more human-like, the harder and harder the job gets for him. Now, I know there are some questions and some theories out there about if Deckard is an android or a human, whatever it may be. This should put that debate to rest. Deckard is a human. We can just say that emphatically, no matter what any other directors or whatever else has been said out there. Deckard is human. And we see just how empathetic he's becoming, especially in comparison with his new partner, Phil Resch, who seems to be very cold and calculating and doesn't really care. Can, can just retire these androids and not even think about it. And towards the end of chapter 12, we read this. So much for the distinction between authentic living humans and humanoid constructs. In that elevator at the museum, he said to himself, I rode down with two creatures, one human, the other android. And my feelings were the reverse of those intended, of those I'm accustomed to feel, and required to feel. And in my copy of the book, the word required is italicized, but he is feeling this way that he is not feeling empathy towards Resh, but he's feeling more empathy towards Luba. He's feeling more empathy towards the android than he is towards the human. But Resh tells him that he's only feeling this way because that android was an attractive woman 
He was feeling attractive to Luba and wanted to have sex with her, which is why he feels bad about her being retired. And Deckard isn't so sure about that. He asks, what about not sex, but love? To which Resh responds, love is another name for sex. Like love of country, Rick said, love of music. If it's love towards a woman or an android imitation, it's sex says Resh. All right, let's pause there. What a problematic view Resh has. But it's also a view that other people have, and probably a lot of people have, that they confuse attraction and romantic love and equate that with sex, that sex equals love. So they feel that if they're attracted to someone, they're lusting after, that they must love them because I felt that attraction and and because uh, I... I, I want to be with them. So what are they really looking for? Well, they're looking for sex. And once that happens, once they get what they want, they see someone else attractive and lust after them. And the cycle starts over and over again. Just a series of people hooking up with each other. And it's such a low view of love. And it's actually such a low view of sex as well. Love and sex become cheapened here. And this has happened in our society in 2022 America. I'm sure we'll get into this more at some point, but I felt it worth mentioning here that when attraction and lust and love and sex are equated, then they all become cheap. They all become cheapened. And they're no and sex is no longer something to be treasured, but it's something to be given away freely and often. But that is not how God would want you to view romantic love and sex. God has a better way than that. One where you are not just quote unquote loved and valued for your body but loved and valued by your spouse for who you are and not just because of what you can give them with sex. And Resh here is cold-blooded, discounting empathy and saying it's just Deckard's sex drive. And he also talks about how if you're going to want to sleep with an android, sleep with them before you retire them. And that's when Deckard realizes just how heartless Resh is. is. And he also realizes that's probably what makes him a really good bounty hunter. But for the first time, Deckard wonders, do I have what it takes to be a good bounty hunter? In chapter 13, we go back to Isidore and Pris in the apartment building, and the two other escaped androids meet up with them. Roy and Ermgard Beatty come to Pris's apartment. And most of chapter 13, it's Pris and Isidore talking. There's really nothing significant here for this chapter for us to discuss, so we'll just move on to chapter 14, where we find out that the only escaped androids left are Pris and Ermgard and Roy Beatty. So they're down to only three left. Also in this chapter, Roy asks Pris why she doesn't live with Isidore, and she responds, a chicken head. I'm not going to live with a chicken head, her nostrils flared. We should expect this from an android. It's who they are in this book. They are cold and selfish, only concerned with themselves, not having empathy for others. But the attitude of Pris here is actually the same of the adi- the same attitude of the other people in the society that we've seen in this book. So is it that the androids are like people or that people are like androids? When I was working on this, a thought occurred to me that the created is like its creator. So if this is how the people feel, it makes sense that this is how the androids would feel because the creator, the created is like the creator. There could be an analogy made here about how God and how we are like God and we are made in God's image, but we've already discussed that. But it was so interesting to me here that we see the same thoughts and attitudes here of Pris 
that we've seen from other people in the society. And it makes sense because the created is like the creator. So it makes sense if the two of them would have the same view on this. But it's interesting also to me how difficult it is at some points in this book to tell the difference between androids and people. Sometimes is not sometimes the difference is not that great, although I think it should be. We do see some android empathy at one point. After Pris calls Isidore a chicken head, Ermgard actually responds, Don't call him that, Pris, Ermgard said. She gave Isidore a look of compassion. Think what he could call you. So we do see some empathy and compassion here from an android and more empathy and compassion than most people we've seen towards Isidore in this book so far. Again, the lines of who is human and who is not is blurred here. And it's also Isidore who has empathy for the android. He agrees to uh, to, to them living in his apartment building. And he agrees that he's not going to tell anyone that they're there, that he's going to try to keep them safe, that he's going to try to protect them. Although he really doesn't know that he's harboring known murderers. He, he doesn't know that, but he's not aware of who they are. But he, he thinks of them as, as, as the victims. That's the way that they portrayed themselves to him. So, so he thinks that they are the victims. Uh, he thinks that they are, are humans that are being unjustly hunted down by a bounty hunter. And even when Pris has a change of heart, or I guess I should, should say change of attitude. I don't know if an android can have a change of heart, but she, she has a change that after, after um, Isidore has offered to help the androids, Pris says, you're a great man, Isidore. You're a credit to your race which is actually pretty awesome because that's not the way that society views Isidore, even though that's the way they should view Isidore. They, they should look at him as being a great man because he is. He's made in God's image and, and, and who he is. And he, he is helpful to people and he does have a job and he does all these great things, but people still look down at him just because he hasn't been able to pass his high IQ test. But he's still a good person who treats other people well and who has empathy and wants to help and and wants to be there for people. So when Pris says, you're a great man, Isidore, you're a credit to your race, that's more of a compliment from an android than society has ever given this man. So again, who, who is more machine-like here? Is it these androids? Or is it people? In chapter 15, we see just how ruthless the androids can be, though. They leave it to a vote to see what they're going to do. Ermgard votes to stay with Isidore. Roy votes to kill Isidore and find somewhere else to stay because now Isidore knows that they're androids. They've let the cat out of the bag. They've told him. He now knows who they are. So so Roy just wants to kill Isidore and move on because he doesn't trust him. But Pris votes to stay, and so they do. So it's interesting there that just how cold Roy can be because, oh, let's just kill this guy and move on. That's his thought. But the other two, no. So again, some lines are blurred here. It's also interesting how different the androids are and their empathy levels are and such, just like humans. All the androids are not programmed the same and all humans are not quote-unquote programmed the same either, that we all have different personality traits and are stronger in one way than in another way and all those kinds of things. So it's interesting that we see that in the androids and we also see that in people as well. In this chapter, Deckard also goes and buys a goat, a real live goat. He's got extra money from retiring all these androids and he wants a live animal. So he buys one even uh, after buying one, however, we read that Deckard still feels dismal. He's gone. He's got his real goat. He's got his real animal, what he's wanted for years, but he still feels dismal. 
getting a live animal doesn't make Deckard feel any better, and it doesn't make him feel fulfilled like he thought it would. Money, possessions, stuff, real goats, they never bring true fulfillment. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. We are longing, looking, searching for fulfillment, for rest for our restless hearts, and that only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. If you want fulfillment, if you want peace, if you want rest for your soul, that is found in Jesus, and Jesus only. Deckard gets a call that Roy and Ermgard have been tallied, have been tailed to building 3967C, the apartment building, and Deckard is dreading having to go and retire three more androids because he's developed compassion and empathy for them. Deckard goes home and tells his wife that he's bought a live goat, and thanks, uh, Iron suggests that Deckard merge with Mercer. And when he does reread this, a landscape of weeds conformed him, a desolation. The air smelled of harsh blossoms. This was the desert, and there was no rain. A man stood before him, a sorrowful light in his weary, pain-drenched eyes. Mercer? Rick said. I am your friend, the old man said. But you must go on as if I did not exist. Can you understand that? He spread empty hands. No, Rick said. I can't understand that. I need help. How can I save you, the old man said, if I can't save myself? He smiled. Don't you see? There is no salvation. Then what's this for? Rick demanded. What are you for? To show you, Wilbur Mercer said, that you aren't alone, that I am here with you and always will be. Go and do your task, even though you know it's wrong. Why, Rick said, why should I do it? I'll quit my job and emigrate. The old man said, you'll be required to do wrong no matter where you go. It is the basic condition of life to be required to violate your own identity. At some time, every creature which lives must do so. It is the ultimate shadow, the defeat of creation. This is the curse at work, the curse that feeds on all life, everywhere in the universe. That's all you can tell me, Rick said. A rock whizzed at him. He ducked and the rock struck him on the ear. At once he let go of the handles and again he stood in his living room beside his, besides his, beside his wife and the empathy box. Well, I feel like I could devote an entire podcast to what I just read. There are several things worth discussing in that. First of all, Mercer tells Deckard to go on as if he doesn't exist. But he also tells him that he'll, he will never be alone and that he'll always be there with him. So if he is there with him, why does Deckard have to go on as though he doesn't exist? That's strange. It seems to be contradicting to itself. Now, Mercer does have a bit of an analogy here to God and that God is always with us and that he always will be, that God has not left us or forsaken us. He hasn't abandoned us. He's always with us. But God also wants us to go on knowing that he exists, knowing that he's with us. Why? Because if God really exists, it makes all the difference. All the difference in who we are and how we live and how we think and how we act and how we talk. It also makes all the difference that we know that God is actually with us, that we can go on knowing he's real, knowing he's with us, instead of just... Uh, just go on as though I didn't exist, even though I'll always be with you. That, that, that is a strange thing that Mercer tells him there. But what's more concerning is that Mercer tells Deckard there is no salvation. 
Oh my, how hopeless is that? There is no salvation, and Mercer is right in one respect. He cannot offer salvation. Mercer cannot offer salvation. There is no there is no salvation of Mercer because salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through him. Jesus is the only path of salvation. But another concern here is that Mercer tells Deckard, you will be required to do wrong no matter where you go. It is the basic condition of life to be required to violate your own identity. At some point, every creature which lives must do so. It is the ultimate shadow, the defeat of creation. It is the curse at work, the curse that feeds on all life everywhere in the universe. Let me tell you, folks, you should not be following a religion or subscribe to a worldview that tells you that you will be required to do wrong no matter where you go, even when you don't want to. What? You are required to do wrong even though you don't want to. Mercer says it's the basic condition of life to be required to violate your own identity. What? What is that? What a low view of God. That's a low view of God because it, it argues of how little God is capable of doing in the life of a person. Jesus came so that we didn't have to do wrong. Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to violate our own identities, so that we would not have to violate who God created us to be. Jesus came so that we could be more than forgiven, so that we could be set free. So that we can be free from doing wrong, free from doing sin, so that we don't have to be held in bondage to sin, so that, that, that we don't have to be held in captivity, but that we can be set free. Hebrews 2, 14-15 says this, since, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus can free us. We can be more than forgiven. We can be set free. Deckard also doesn't want to finish the last three bounty hunter contracts he has, but he gives into that idea that Mercer's right, that he had, just has to go and get this over with, that he has to go and do something that he doesn't want to do, that he has to, to follow down this path even though that he knows that it's wrong. Well, perhaps Mercerism doesn't fit in that well with empathy after all, if this is what they require of their followers. This chapter ends with Deckard calling Rachel and asking her to come down to see him, that he says that they can get a hotel room if she just comes and sees him. He says he won't retire the final three androids. That he'll, he'll give up. That they'll figure something else if you can just come down and see me. In chapter 16, we start with Deckard in the hotel room. and He's looking at the sheets that give him information about the final three androids. It gives him the information about the ones that he's looking to retire. And he asks this question. Do androids dream? And he doesn't mean, do they go to sleep and dream? What he means is, do they dream of something better for themselves? Do they want something better than being slaves to a people who have immigrated to Mars? Do they dream in that sense? Do they, do they have wishes and aspirations? Do they want something more out of life than what they had? And Decker concludes that they must. And that's why they occasionally kill their human masters and flee that the androids must dream. 
not in falling asleep sense, but in the in aspiring to be somewhere sense. But what do the people of this world dream about? They dream about having a real animal so that they can have recognition and status that comes with owning that so they can take care of it, so they can show how people how, how empathetic they really are, so other people can see that. So if that's what the people of this world dream about, then what, what would it be that androids would dream about? Do androids dream of electric sheep? Is that what gets them to kill their owners and flee? I would say the answer is no. Androids do not dream of electric sheep. They dream of something more than that. They dream of what the humans are dreaming of. They, they are dreaming of, they are longing for freedom. They're longing for freedom. I think that's what the title of this book is getting at. Do androids dream of electric sheep? The answer is no. Androids dream of freedom. What do we dream of as people? We dream of freedom. Freedom from bondage, freedom from sin, freedom from depression, freedom from anxiety, freedom from all these different things. That's what we're dreaming of, and it's what the androids are dreaming of too. And it can happen through Jesus Christ, that we can have freedom. I think that's what the title's getting at, that we should be dreaming more than just to own real animals or to show people our status or wealth or whatever it may be, but we should be, we should be dreaming, we should be longing for freedom and that true freedom is only found in Jesus Christ because who the Son has set free is free indeed. But what about you? What do you think the title means? I, I could be wrong about this. That's just something that came to me as I was thinking more and more about this. And when I first read this title, and the first couple of times I read this book, I was not looking at it in the same eyes that I read preparing for this podcast. So I kind of just thought that, yeah, falling asleep, dreaming, you know, um, I, I don't know. I thought maybe it had something to do with counting sheep when you fall, you know, trying to fall asleep, trying to count sheep. I didn't, I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into what the title meant until I started preparing for this. And then I think there's a lot of meaning to that title. What do androids dream of and what do you dream of? Interesting questions there. In this chapter, most of the time is spent with Deckard and Rachel in the hotel room where it's clearly leading up to the two of them having sex. At one point before they do the deed, Rachel asks Deckard if he has ever slept with an android. He says no, but he's heard if one doesn't think about it too much, it isn't a problem. And Rachel responds, remember though, don't think about it, just do it. Don't pause and be philosophical because from a philosophical standpoint, it's dreary for both of us. That, my friends, is a terrible framework for sexual ethics. Don't stop and think about it, just do it. That is bad sexual ethics. You should stop and you should think about it. And when it comes uh, in all areas of your life, stopping and thinking and just not acting is a very good principle. And it's a very good principle when it comes to sexual ethics. And when it comes to sex, as in all things, God's way is the best way. And God's way is a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. That is the framework within which sex should happen. That's not the way Deckard has decided to live. He's not following God's way. And we see here that what, he has start, what has started as lustful thoughts for Deckard has turned into adultery as he has sex with Rachel. So what has started as thoughts have now turned into actions. Which brings us back to why Jesus tells us, don't even think about this because your thought life matters and what you think influences how you act. And we see that coming true here with Deckard. His lustful thoughts 
have become lustful actions. Rachel tells Decker that if they sleep together, she'll retire Pris Stratton because Pris and Rachel, they're the same model. They look very much alike. And Rachel knows that it's going to be very hard for Decker to retire Pris now, even though Decker told Rachel they would find another way. Uh, they do not. And the bounty is still out for the three androids and Deckard needs to retire them to get the money to pay for his goat. So even though he's told, Rachel, if you come down here, we'll figure out another way. She comes down, she even sleeps with him, but they still don't figure out another way. So there's a lot of prob- ethical, a lot of things that are very ethical, ethically problematic here. A lot of things that are going on that there's manipulation, there's coercion, there's all kinds of things here that raise flags for sexual ethics that should not be happening. That's not good sexual ethic practice. We see that all in chapter 16. You could do a, a, a casework study on chapter 16 and see the number of bad sexual ethical practices in here and what you should not do. But in chapter 17, we learned that the androids have about a four-year lifespan because science has never been able to figure out how to get the organic androids to replace cells. So after about four years, enough cells die that the androids die as well. And Rachel reveals that Deckard is not the first bounty hunter she has had sex with. She has slept with nine. And all nine of the bounty hunters, after sleeping with her, have given up bounty hunting. Except for our old friend Phil Rash. Yep, Rachel's even slept with Phil. Didn't stop him from bounty hunting, though, because that's just how cold Phil is as a person. And we see, though, that this was her goal for Deckard, too, to have sex with him so that he would stop. And it seems to have worked in some way because he's determined that after he retires the remaining three, he is done. But Rachel tells him that he won't be able to retire those three, that Rachel has made him feel a connection and compassion and pity and empathy for her that will be passed on to other androids. And and she says that that Deckard won't be able to to retire any of them anymore and he's not going to be able to be a bounty hunter anymore. But in chapter 18, we're back to the apartment building with Isidore and the androids. And for the first time in his life, Isidore feels accepted. He feels a part of a group. And here's what we read about him after Pris asks him to get her TV because they're all moving to the new apartment. He entered Pris's former apartment, unplugged the TV set and detached the antenna. The silence all at once penetrated. He felt his arms grow vague. In the absence of the Beatties and Pris, he found himself fading out, becoming strangely like the inert television set which had just unplugged. You have to be with other people, he thought. In order to live it all. I mean, before they came here, I could stand it, being alone in the building, but now it's changed. You can't go back, he thought. You can't go from people to non-people. In a panic, he thought, I'm dependent on them. Thank God they stayed. The impact of loneliness. We see it here again, and we have to discuss, and we have discussed this several times, but I feel it's worth mentioning again. And Isidore is right here that you have to be with order. You have to be with other people in order to live at all. So, who are your people? Are you involved in a local church? Are you doing life together with other Christians? We need people. We need community. We need community. Isidore has come to understand that, and he is right. It is something that we need. Also in this chapter, we see that it is reported by Buster Friendly that Mercer is a fraud. He isn't getting real rocks thrown at him, and although he appears as an old bearded man to his followers, he's actually just a character played by a small-time actor named Al Jerry. 
But even though Isidore hears this, he still believes there's some truth in the principles of Mercerism, even if the man it's based off of is a lie. Now, I'm not sure I could follow someone who makes good points or has valid principles, but has lied about who he is. Because character matters, and especially when we're talking about the church and its Christian leaders, character matters. Also in this chapter, um, Isidore finds a spider. A real living spider, but Pris and the androids torture it to death, seeing just how few legs it needs to be able to survive and be able to walk and to be able to move around. So he kills it. So, so the, the androids kill it. When Isidore finds out, he's upset and goes to the empathy box where Mercer or L. Jerry, whoever he may be now, brings the spider back to life. But as we have just learned, things in the world of the empathy box are not always as they seem. And this chapter ends with the alarm going off and Roy Beatty yelling out that there's a bounty hunter in the building. In chapter 19, the androids ask Isidore to stop Deckard from coming in the apartment. They want him to tell him that he lives alone and that no one is there. And Isidore, who has the live spider that Mercer or Al Jerry gave him, whoever he may be, he goes outside and lets it go. And outside he sees Deckard and tells the bounty hunter that he's not going to help him. But in the apartment building, Mercer appears and tells Deckard where the androids are. So is Mercer real or not? He's just been shown to be a fraud, but now he appears to Deckard. Is he real? Is he not? I think what's being said here, not just here, but also within the book essentially, is that if Mercer is real to you, then he is real. If he's not real to you, then he isn't real. Which doesn't make sense because real is real, period. Truth is truth, period. If Mercer can be anything to anyone, then he is all things but also nothing. And that just doesn't make sense. But we are never given enough information to find out what is real about Mercer. Again, I think the point is here that if you if Mercer is who you follow and believe, then that's who he is to you, and that's okay. But if you don't follow and believe, then that's okay too, and that's who he is to you. I, it doesn't make sense, and it's a dangerous theology, but a, a theology that many people have today. Believe whatever works for you, and I'll believe whatever works for me. Well, if truth is truth, and it is, then whatever is true for you is true for me, and whatever is true for me is true for you. That just doesn't work if truth is truth. It doesn't matter what you believe is true. It doesn't matter what I believe is true. My beliefs do not impact truth, because truth is truth, whether I believe it or not. So this kind of idea quickly falls apart if your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth because truth is not subjective like that. It just doesn't work that way. After Mercer tells Deckard where the android... Then, so Mercer appears to Deckard and he tells him where the androids are. And Pris is actually there and she tries to attack Deckard, but now he knows that she's on where she's coming from because Mercer appeared to him. And Deckard is able to retire her. Then he goes, and, and, and then Mercer disappears. Then he goes to the apartment where the babies are, and they shoot at Deckard, so he doesn't have to give them the Voight-Kampf test to retire him because they have shot at him, they've started it. So Deckard goes into the apartment and quickly and easily retires Imgard and Roy. It's actually very anticlimactic. There's no great speeches, there's no big shootout. Ermgard is retired first, Roy cries out, Deckard acknowledges Roy's love for her and then he retires Roy and that's it six androids six Nexus six model androids retired in one day nearly a record 
In chapter 20, Isidore comes up to the apartment and sees what's happened. Decker tells him to go to a different apartment until things get cleaned up, but, but Isidore says that he's moving. He's going to move deep, deeper in town where there are more people. Isidore has truly come to understand the importance and need of human interaction, relationship, and community. Decker tells, tells Isidore, that, hey, there's a room in my apartment building for, for rent that you can have, I'm sure, but Isidore tells him, I don't want to live near you. I can see why. Deckard leaves and goes home where his wife, Iran, tells him his goat is dead. She said someone pushed his goat off the roof of the apartment building and it died. And when Iran describes how the woman looked, Deckard knows that it was Rachel who killed his goat. And he gets in his hover car. And he flies away. In chapter 21, as Deckard flies out to the wilderness, we read this. For Mercer, everything is easy. He thought... This is what Deckard thinks. For Mercer, everything is easy, he thought. But Mercer accepts everything. Nothing is alien to him. But what I've done, he thought, that's become alien to me. In fact, everything about me has become unnatural. I've become an unnatural self. Have you ever felt like that? I know that I have. It reminds me a bit of Romans 7, 14 through 20. But here's what we read. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I want to do, not and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living within me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin in me that does it. I think this is what Deckard is feeling he's doing, that he has done things that he doesn't want to do, that he has done things that he has known is wrong, that he is unsettled about it, and he, and he doesn't think there's anything that he can do about it. What I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and what I want to do, I can't do, and the things that I'm doing are the things that I hate, and he's going through this struggle here that, that we are also reading about in Romans 7, but that's not the end of the chapter in Romans 7. Verses 21 through 25 continue on. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What, the, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. If you feel like Decker did, that, that you are doing things that you don't want to do, that you are doing things that you hate, that you feel like you've violated your identity. If you are doing those things, there is freedom. And there is a feeling of liking yourself and who you are and what you do, but those things are only truly found by being in a relationship with Jesus because he accepts you into his family and then he starts to clean you up. Decker gets out in the wilderness and he has what he thinks is a merger with Mercer without using an empathy box, but who knows what it really is. 
What is clear, though, is that Deckard is hurting, that he is struggling. In chapter 22, the last chapter, Deckard finds a real live toad in the wilderness, and it gives him hope. It pulls him out of his depression, and he's so happy because it's believed that toads are extinct, and he, he keeps thinking about all the different accolades and all the different magazines he could be in and all the different things that he could get by finding a real live toad. And he captures it in a box and he goes back home where Iran finds that the toad is not real. But it's an electrical toad. A fake. Iran suggests Rick use the mood organ to feel better. But he declines. Talking about retiring the androids, Deckard says, Mercer said it was wrong, but I should do it anyway. Really weird. Sometimes it's better to do something wrong than right. I'm not so sure about that. Is it? Is it sometimes better to do something wrong than right? No, of course it's not. Doing right is always better than doing wrong. The question then, however, is what is right? And the answer to that is what is right is God's way. The way that God would have us to do things. The book ends with Deckard falling asleep and his wife ordering fake flies for their new fake toad to eat because she says Deckard is devoted to the toad. And there you have it. That's the end. Depression, what it means to be truly human, being made in the image and likeness of God and what that means, empathy, lust, adultery, thoughts turning to action, and much more discussed by looking at Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Is there anything I missed? Is there anything I overlooked? Is there anything you have more questions about? I would love to hear from you if there is. So thank you for listening. Personally, I love this book and the topics that it raises for us to use as a vehicle to discuss a number of theological issues. So what about you? What did you like about this book? Is there something that you would want more information on? Is there anything that I overlooked? What are some thoughts that you have? I would love to hear from you with any thoughts, ideas, suggestions, concerns, criticisms, whatever it may be. I would love to hear whatever it is from you. And you can contact me on Twitter or Instagram at Theology and Sci-Fi. And of course, we spell Sci-Fi the right way around here, S-C-I-F-I. Or you can follow on Facebook at Theology and Sci-Fi the podcast or email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you. And I'm looking forward to our next episode, which will focus on a book by my other favorite science fiction author, Clifford D. Samack, and it is a book titled A Choice of God, so look for that to be released on February 28th. I can't wait to do this again. I've truly enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. Thanks for listening. For Theology in Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout. In the enormous whale belly of steel and stone carved out, from the long, enduring old opera house, Rick Deckard found an echoing, noisy, slightly miscontrived rehearsal taking place. 